Graham? Hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? Good. Where are you today? I just arrived to Maui last night. Or last night, the night before. So I'm in Maui. Oh, oh nice. I'm in Boulder, and it's just uh, hovering around freezing, so enjoy Maui. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to meet you, and thank you for joining the Daily Evolver and talking to the integralists and evolutionaries in our sphere here, because I really do think that you're one of the key people who is really moving the ball in interesting ways in terms of cultural evolution, technical evolution. And so I guess I just want to start by checking in on what you've been up to and what you're thinking about and what got your attention these days. Well, well, my attention these days is, uh, I mean, I'm still love Trieger and I'm still going strong, but I have no official uh, role there. So I just sort of check in and try to help out how I can. Um, cool. And now my focus is really, in a way, I'm trying to build the physical tree hugger, which essentially is the, the, the base, base idea is that America, in particular, has supersized itself over the last 60 years or so, and, and uh, it's just not working for us. So we have about three times the space per person, so we have way larger environmental footprints. We also have learned to live beyond our means financially, and so we have a lot of debt. And we have so much stuff that even with triple the amount of space, um, we still have a $22 billion personal storage industry on top of that. Right. So we have a lot of space, a lot of stuff, massive environmental footprints, a lot of debt, and, and it would all make some sense if we were happier, but we're not. Think, uh, happiness levels have pretty much flatlined since then. Yeah. And so... Basically, we're, um, we believe that if you're smart about how you apply design, technology, and a little behavior change, you can create really compelling ways of living that are really awesome and fulfilling and, and the like, um, but that are also allow you to live within your means financially and environmentally, and that uh, uh, these sort of simpler lives with less space and less stuff uh, are happier lives. Yeah. So that's that's what I'm focused on, and basically slowly partnering with great developers and doing some development ourselves, and just trying to build out physical models um, of how to live this way. Yeah, cool. And let me fill in a little of your biography that will uh, illuminate some of this. So you were an internet entrepreneur and got a pretty good windfall there before you were 30 years old, correct? Mm -hmm. Yep. And then you found a treehugger.com, which is really a great website on uh, environmental design, basically, which you sold to the Discovery Channel. Sounds like you're still involved, but it's their thing. Yep. Also, your book, Weekday Vegetarian, which mm -hmm. you've done a TED Talk on. It's an Amazon book. And I think really excellent. I mean, it's, it's what I'm trying to be these days as a weekday vegetarian. You inspired me. And then the thing that got a lot of attention for you was an article you did in the New York Times Sunday section on uh, living with less and, and talked about living in your 420 square foot apartment in New York City mm -hmm. and how you've downsized from really a big millionaire's lifestyle, let's face it, to yep. a lifestyle that's really working, again, moving the ball in, in this living with less. So is that, is that the development work you're, you're in right now? 
Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so I lived a larger life. You know, I sold a company in '98 and did what most people do is you feel like you have to spend it. So I got a big 3,600 square foot home and filled it full of stuff. And basically, over the years, realized that that really wasn't working for me. So um, yeah, so I had this amazing 420 square foot apartment in Soho, and uh, it's the the main space transforms really easily, and so it can be a a living room, a bedroom, an office, uh, a big dining room. I can have sit-down dinners for 10 or 12 people. And then a moving wall that uh, set, uh, comes out and separates the space into two, such that you can have uh, and some guest, guest bed um, come out of the wall. So it, it, uh, it, works, it works just great. And, and uh, yeah, the, the general concept is that we'd like to do build some really amazing mixed-use uh, apartment buildings with uh, you know commercial stuff probably mostly at the base, and then uh, units in the 200 to maybe a thousand square feet. So from everything from singles to uh, families of four. So really efficient transforming spaces that are great to live in with less footprint and make sense financially, and and then a bunch of sharing uh, components as part of that to help build community and just because it makes sense. So bookable spare bedrooms so so that you can uh, basically zip carify the spare bedroom so that um, if you have people coming you just book it out online it's professionally cleaned and you can have more than one person come visit if you'd like um, yeah. and a product library would probably be another another thing where you just all sorts of things that don't make sense to own that are large to store or expensive or most importantly rarely used but you'd like to have access to them, so you get get those. Just check them out from a library in your building or in your neighborhood, um, and then you know shared lounges and professional kitchens, roof decks, um, fitness, uh, that sort of stuff. So yeah, so we're trying to build just really smart buildings um, for the future. They're largely focused in um, dense urban areas because the world is urbanizing. It, we, we're, half of us live in cities as of a few years ago, and that's going quickly up to 70%. And cities are great because they're uh, really green, because we're good at sharing resources. And they also have a lot of innovation. 93% of patents come from cities, and that's largely because of the mixing of uh, people, and they just make sense um, financially. So I think that you know, there's a big future in cities, and um, the work that we do uh, is stuff that fit, fits really well and, and meets a lot of the city's uh, needs. Well, and I love what you said in one of your articles, I believe a tree hugger, about the location of this kind of less living, uh, small apartments, small housing, and so forth, is really important because you want to have your living space out your front door. You want to be able to live in the city and have parks and restaurants and yep. you know other people. And so that you actually spend a lot of time out in the world. And what a great idea. You know, what a great sentiment. Yeah, I think it's um, your, your, um, there are a couple of good quotes. Um, one is that your city is your living room. And, you know, I don't think we want to take it too far that direction. Like, you still want some of your own space. You can keep it quiet and get away and, you know, have some one-on-one -on -one or some more intimate moments. But... I mean, it, the city, yeah, the, uh, you know, it provides amazing places to spend time in, whether it's restaurants or cafes or museums or co-working spaces. And I think what's interesting is that, in a way, in the last 50, 60 years, and a lot of the sort of suburbia stuff is, in some ways, sort of, I wonder if it's a fear of intimacy. We've yeah. um, 
sort of separate ourselves to a larger and larger level. So we have our own houses and, and we drive around alone in our cars and then, you know, even in your house, they're so large that you have separate rooms with separate uh, TVs and people just sort of separate and separate and separate. And I think that ultimately uh, that becomes really uh, lonely and, and alienating and, and we're actually uh, really social beings and there's definitely a role for spending time alone and having some privacy, but um, we're really like easy access um, to other people I think is important. I think relationships yeah. and connection and experience are, are really, really important to us and that's why you yeah. know, cities are part, one of the reasons cities are so popular. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, from an integral point of view, it's just we, we actually want both of those things. We want to have our interior space. We want to have a, our exterior space. We want to be with people. We want to be alone. And we want that all available, and that just makes for a richer life. And, you know, what I love about what you're doing, Graham, and, and, and what you're talking about is, you know, just from an evolutionary point of view, and that's what we are all about here in the integral world, it just feels like it's next. It feels like... You know, it solves so many problems, uh, including the interior problems, the spiritual problems, if you will, of being alienated, alone, and separated. I keep thinking, you know, and, and, and I have a little bit of a, the same uh, background as you. I, I hit the jackpot in business. I was 40, not 30, but still, you know, I was living large. And I haven't downscaled to, you know, 400 square feet by any means, but I've definitely downscaled. And mm -hmm. I've had personal experience with that, you know, affluenza, where your stuff starts sort of just sucking the psychic energy out of your system. Human beings are really, you know, I don't know if we're hardwired, but there's a, you know, there's a big sort of impulse for just getting more and getting more secure and, and getting safe. And it takes a little bit of a wake up to realize that, this stuff is actually decreasing your quality of life. To have too much stuff is actually, uh, you know, a, a bad thing. Well, I think, you know, my theory, which is developing on that, is that really until, you know, probably sometime around the 50s, before that, for our entire, since we've been around, it made sense to hoard. It did. And that's because there was sort of less to hoard. You know, you needed stuff. Like if you're preparing for the winter, you know, whether it's weapons or tools or uh, furs or war for warmth or food, like hoarding probably made a lot of sense. And just, but at a certain point, it just doesn't. It's like bigger is better is, as a general rule is a good one until a certain point. And I think we sort of reached that in, in, in the 50s. In that, like we just all of a sudden, we were able, stuff was able to be made in, inexpensively enough and, and, and is much more accessible. Um, and that particularly in the last number of decades, big box stores, internet shopping, etc. So basically, all of a sudden, what, what used to really work for us, collecting as much stuff as possible, it just flipped. Bigger is better until it isn't. Yeah. And I think we just the point where, where, where it isn't. And so it becomes, a, I mean, we live in incredibly overwhelming times. I mean, just look yeah. at the just look at media. I mean, the amount of websites and newspapers and magazines and TV shows and and then the way you communicate, you know, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and email and cell and Skype. I mean, it's, it's really 
out of control. And we're we're you know we're we're used to. I think we came came about for the most most of our being or most of our history really as you know knowing a maximum of like 150 people kind of thing. And now we know yeah. thousands. I know. And so it's a, you know it's, it's really a challenge. It, it's a re- it's really a challenge. It, it, you know, yeah. on a personal level, I'm 43. And I just sort of realized in the last sort of 10 years, like I'm a social guy, I've lived all over the world in different places, and at a certain point, you just know, you know too many people, and, and you have to learn how to say no. Yeah. And that's a very hard thing to, to reconcile, but you just, it just doesn't, it's physics. You only have so much time in the day, and you could just be communicating the whole time, but you're never going to, you know... You're just gonna lose lose yourself and <laughs> never get anything done. Right. So that's true. Um, you know, we really were just talking about the talking about this sort of general phenomena in integral terms is that you know part of the challenge of our age in all kinds of realms is to deal with too much, especially in things like food, sex, porn being an example there. And certainly, food, drink, drugs. Uh, these things that, you know, we're hardwired to want to feel better. We're hardwired, hardwired to want to eat. We're hardwired for sex. We're hardwired for more in a certain way. In human history, when you consider that most of human history was a, was a hunt for calories, you know, I mean, it's actually a good problem. It's a higher-end problem to have too many calories. But nevertheless, it's a problem. And one of the things that we see in terms of cultural evolution is that as people move from a modern mindset, which is basically a growth mindset, it's industrial growth, it's it's, it's GDP growth, it's, you know, we want to get more. That's the ethos, the economic ethos of modernity. But Mm post-modernity sees, you know, basically sees the world. It begins to have a really truly world-centric view and sees that, you know, there's a limit to growth, period. I mean, there's, there's a point where sustainability, and that's, you know, of course, the economic orienting principle of post-modernity is sustainability. You're one of the people who are really helping us see. And, and what I love about your work, Graham, is that you're so tech-friendly. You're not about going back into some sort of a romantic past, but forward into just, yeah. you know, a better way to live. Yeah, yeah. I try to be pragmatic. I mean, I think we and we say vegetarian is probably a good example of that. You know, just trying to understand what what um, you can be overly idealistic and then nothing really happens with it. You know, so I think yeah. you know, like it, in, that, in that case, people don't want to have their last hamburger, and so right. as a result, they they you know stay the same. But if if you can all of a sudden become a weekday vegetarian, then you can still have that hamburger on the weekends, but you still cut down your meat. Uh, consumption by like seventy percent. Right. So yeah, definitely, definitely try. Yeah, and that that alone is a very integral idea. It just has a, the feel of integral to it because it's non-ideological in the sense that it doesn't buy into the meat is bad, horrible. You ought to feel guilty, and mm. it doesn't you know buy into okay. Then you know what can you do? You might as well just throw in the towel to come up with something mm-hmm. that actually is a little challenging. Because the truth is, I am doing it. And I'm not mm-hmm. doing it perfectly, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm eating so much less meat now than I was yeah. that 
you know, I feel good about that. And, and it's been a practice, and I'm happy to practice it. It feels healthy and, as we say in integral, in all quadrants. It's good for me. It's good for the world. It's good for my relationships. It's good for the you know, whole mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. Like, uh, the thing I like about it, too, is you set up these rules, and then you cheat a little bit. So you can feel like a bit yeah. of a rebel. And the, yeah. if you do that, you're still going to be eating half, half the meat a normal person would. You know? and, right. And if, if, if we all ate half as much meat, it would be like half of us were vegetarian. And that's, that's pretty powerful. It's, it's that's pretty darn powerful that. indeed. Yes, it is. So I loved that, you know, one of your more integral credentials was, would be that you were critiqued by Green, and I'm thinking about the um, article in The Nation that was sort of a rebuttal. Uh, forget mm. who wrote it, Richard Kim, yeah. And it was, from an integral perspective, a very green critique, a very postmodern critique of what you're doing. And the first point that he made was basically because you're a millionaire, <laughs> you have no mm-hmm. moral authority. <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you really just can't talk about this stuff. And that's just sort of repulsive to me. And then secondly, uh, was basically blind to the spiritual and, and quality of life dimensions of what you're talking about. And that's actually the main thing you're talking about, really. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's definitely been, you know, I mean, if they say, if I think if you don't have a bunch of people against you, you're probably not doing anything particularly interesting. That's um, right. Yeah. And, but I get it, you know, I get it. I understand why people w- could look at it that way. And, yeah, it is easier for me to, to, to say stuff. And, um, and you know, so for people that are downsizing, not because they want to, that's a, that's a hard place, that's a hard place Absolutely. to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, so I have, so I, I respect it. That said, I've also seen both sides. Um, I've had, no, I've had not a lot of money, um, right. and, and, and I have money, so I've sort of seen both. And and I would say that, you know, often people that have made some money, uh, you know, if, if they've actually, particularly if they've sort of made it themselves, they, they probably have a few things to add. You know, they're probably they, they, they made it entirely luck, but I think as a as a general rule, they're probably some smart people, and they made have something to add to the party. And so, to not want to listen to them because they have money just seems uh, a little bit uh, silly. Yeah, no, I, I agree, and it's it's a it's what we call a mean green critique. It just comes from an ideology that sort of has an allergy to money in general and to mm. modernity in general and to consumerism and 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 it you know it doesn't see the you know the that we now live that we have indoors that we have enough calories that we have really the fruits of modernity are amazing it turns out mm. that we can we can get sick with them <laughs> it turns out that we can eat too much of them but mm-hmm. uh, by and large, you know, it's good to have these things. And, you know, one of the things I think about, and I, I, I just wonder, this is a little out of left field maybe for you, but I'm sure you've thought about it, is how do you see the economy evolving when we have a world where, and, and, and we have a world right now where material possessions are just getting ever more cheap, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of our ability to create material wealth through automation and globalization and all of that good stuff is just remarkable. And at the same Mm -hmm. time, if people begin to get hip to what you're talking about, 
they're going to be actually consuming less and maybe even far less. So how's the economy work at that point? I mean, I think that we are we're smart beings and we'll figure it out. And I think to sort of, um, I think you want to do the things that sort of make sense. And if, if you know, if we're, <laughs> the way that we're living doesn't make a lot of sense. And I don't think an argument for us to stay like that is just because we're scared of, jo- of losing jobs. Right. Um, I think that we, I think that we will figure that out. And, yeah, I do and too. I don't know. This is not the kind of thing that uh, will happen tomorrow. I wish, it, you know, I wish in a way it would, but I think we'll have a lot of time uh, to adjust to all this. So, you know, I think we can. We're smart enough to figure that out, and um, and we're smart enough to not just go, okay, well, it's not all the, it's not all the jobs, right? We, yeah. we can't. We can pick that up. Well, and there's some really good thinking on this, too. I'm thinking of Charles Eisenberg and the creativity economy and that people just work in different things. They basically serve each other in different, basically higher-level ways. And, you know, we'll we'll see how we work that out. But um, if you look at the ways we serve each other now versus the way we served each other 100 years ago or, you know, 500 years ago, it's radically different. It's far more complex. It's far more... Beautiful in, in you know many ways and and varied and complex and all of that good stuff. So anyway, we'll see. And yeah. I do. I, I'm with you. I'm just like we'll figure this out. But there's a. I mean, it's a, like I, I. It's hard to do over voice, but you know I think that the main problem that we are facing in terms of growth is there's sort of two, two symbols or graphics that I think of, and, and one is just the, the stock market graph with the arrow going up, right? Growth. Mm-hmm. Constant growth. Yeah. That we're all everything is based on constant growth, and the other graphic is is the physical, the sphere that we live on, the physical limits. Yeah. <laughs> Those two like just don't don't work together at a certain point, and I think so. You know, in in like broad strokes, it's like the we used to feel like the planet was sort of infinite, and and in a way it was. I mean, back in the day, we probably we could just do whatever we wanted and the environment would just work it out because it just we didn't have that much power over the over right. the whole planet unless we lived at Easter Island and you can see that there were people who with that same mentality did run out of resources they just weren't you know figuring it out yeah so sadly we're sort of doing that on on a larger level it's like we've worked our way around the planet and and uh, all of a sudden we are back we we're realizing oh yeah. Back to the we're back to the beginning. Right. Where we just have too much effect on this planet, and so yeah. we clearly need a new model. It can't all be uh, at a certain point. It can't be about infinite infinite growth. Yeah. And uh, so that'll take us a second to <laughs> to re- to adjust to that. Yeah. No. For sure. Yeah, so um, Graham, tell us a little bit more about what you're working on in in terms of uh, development, where you're doing it what it's looking like. I'd like to hear cool. about that. Um, well, I guess, first of all, I think important. So it's called Life Edited, and then we have um, the site, lifeedited.com. And we also have a great newsletter, which I encourage anyone um, who's interested in this to sign up. It's sort of focused on this stuff. And, um, I, we, it's important, like, there's a lot of talk about microunits, and we're absolutely into microunits. And, you know, one of the projects we're doing with a, a group called Vitacon down Sao Paulo has 175 square foot units, like 40 of them, so very small. Um, so microunits are definitely valid, 
and you know our society has really changed. There are a lot more people living. Uh, they're singles than there used to be. In fact, it's, it's sort of the same numbers as families, around 27, 28%. And our housing stock doesn't really reflect that. So microunits are important in that we do do that. But I like to look at us as really experts in small square foot per person. And so that can mean, that can mean a family of four, you know. And we're just sort of smart about, about playing uh, the the Tetris game that is sort of uh, working with small space. So we're good at layout, and we're good at understanding all that's happening via our our daily focus on it via the website and newsletter. We understand just the tricks and the furniture and the housewares that can be applied, and so that's sort of our our general focus. And so we really want to do apartments from for singles, for um, for roommates that are sharing, and for families. Um, and so be, be various sizes. And so um, we have one going up in uh, Brooklyn with Jonathan Rose, uh, an amazing environmentalist and developer um, that's near the BAM. And so that'll be, that's like 40 odd. It's a mixed use uh, uh, building with iBeam, uh, art and technology uh, group in the uh, ground floor, the Science Museum from Dublin, and then the second floor. And then a whole bunch of um, units, and so we've done like four, we did the design for 40 of them, and they're around 300 square feet, roughly. Wow. What's the smallest and what's the largest, Graham? Um, that we've done. No, I'm talking about in terms of the micro units. What's the smallest square foot? You say the average oh. is what 300? Oh, that just in terms of that specific project, they're all yeah. they're varying sizes, but all around 300. And yeah. I think people sort of look at, you know, 400 square feet and less as being a micro unit, something like that, and just evolving the sort of general understanding of that. I think we would look at that probably that way. Yeah. So the South Hall was 175 square feet. That's, that's getting, getting pretty small. Yeah, that um, is getting pretty small. And that, that would be, you would think of that as for one person, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then so for a family of four, they'd have probably more like 500 plus? Yeah, probably more like 650, 700 plus for, right. for, for you know, a couple and two kids. And yeah, and so we're actually looking oh, at doing some development um, out in Brooklyn um, for our own development. And so we'll be looking to raise some money. Hey, Graham, let me ask you so uh, the, the Brooklyn project, would these be? Condominiums for sale? Would these be rentals or both or what? Those are rentals. Okay. And, yeah. and what would they rent per month for? Just give me a ballpark. Hmm. I think around two grand. Uh huh. Okay. Now, what's really what's really really important <laughs> here is this is for New York City. So if you're not from New right. York. That can sound very expensive, but um, yeah, that, that, you know, we're trying trying to. They end up being a, a fair for a beautiful new apartment in a great location with a uh, oh, cool cafe. Uh, Jeffrey Zorowski from uh, Witchcraft is putting together his cool cafe and right. downstairs as well. Um, it ends up being a good deal, and so you know, I think ideally we're sort of uh, all of our projects kind of. It'll be people will look at it this way. They'll sort of look, and it'll be less square square feet. It might cost it might be a little more per square foot because right. you have 
um, you know, you've taken more care with the design, and there's some some pretty cool transforming furniture and that sort of stuff. So maybe a little bit more per square foot, but overall, um, you will compare it to a much larger apartment. You have the functionality of a larger apartment, and so you're going to pay less and still get the functionality and save some money on utilities and lower your footprint and still have a great setup. So that's you know, the general thing. So, you know, these with I think I could have my numbers wrong, but I think they'll, you know, there could be something like 2000. Um yeah. the comparable will be, you know, 2600 or something for a larger for a larger apartment. So, you know, pretty significant yeah. saving. Yeah. So yeah, actually save money. And I wanted to point out for our listeners that you have an amazing video of your own apartment, the one you talked about in the New York Times. Uh, mm-hmm. On what site is it? Is it on Life Edited? Yeah, we've got it all, that's on Life Edited. Yeah. I'll have a link to it in the uh, of copy on this call. But yeah, uh, it's really, really amazing to see how you transform that space in into all kinds of different ways. And it's it's uh, really fun and inspiring and it looks like it's fun to live in. Yeah, it's great. I've lived in it for a year and a half and I'm really happy with how it turned out. I mean, it's yeah. pretty cool. I live in this uh, Sullivan Street, it's really neighborhoody streets. I live in a great location and 420 square feet and I can have sit-down dinners for 12 people. I can work at home. I can have guests over. I have a ton of storage for my kite surfing gear and that sort of stuff. I could just the whole thing works really, really well. And it's about the last, the place I lived before that was like seven twenty. So, you know, pretty much half the space and I'm still yeah. still doing the same stuff. So it's um it's great. It really works. Well and the other part of it is then as I recall from the article you said you had like six shirts and twelve bowls and no DVDs, almost no books. Uh you just there's mm-hmm. a lot less you, you know, pots and pans and mixers and bakers and toasters and all you just have to sort of rethink the whole sort of lifestyle right yeah absolutely yeah, yeah we got i mean i think the one of the main challenges is that it's like the the oh but i might need that right. that sort of <laughs> idea and it's really like like stuff that's for really rare occasions and it's just like it ends up perverting the overall design because you're trying to design for this thing which really happens very rarely. And so, I don't know, a good example would be just thinking about like a a four-wheel drive truck or something. Like maybe you, you know, if you're the kind of person that really only uses it once a year to go off-roading, then maybe it's better to really get something that's designed for how you use it most of the time, which might be, you know, driving 10 miles and parking. Um, and then when you need that four-wheeler, then you rent uh, an amazing four-wheeler. And in the yeah. meantime, you sort of – so really designing for some, designing the experience for how it is most of the time, the 90% of the time, and not for that 5 or 10% the rest or, or less. And so yeah. that's the sort of general idea that we apply to all of this. And so, you know, and so imagine if you say you don't have a, a moving wall and spare bedroom in your small place. You know, so then if you don't have guests that come that often, then you save a ton of money and you can help them out in renting a hotel, you know, or Absolutely. Airbnb or something. It's yeah. just, uh, so we're very, as Americans, we sort of, we want it all. And, yeah. and 
the, the reality is that wanting it all can it can be not so not so good for you. After I sold my business, I moved into one of the houses that had the great room that was a great room for the once every two year party where you'd have 60, 70 people. And it would be a beautiful scene and blah, blah, blah. But the rest of the time, it, suck, it sat there sucking the energy out of your aura. Yeah. <laughs> you <know? Yep>. That's <laughs> this a great big empty, big, empty, cavernous space. So, yeah. So I, 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 kind of thing that you could, you know, rent out an amazing restaurant space totally. for that night, take everyone out to dinner, and you'd still end up saving money compared to having this big space, which is hardly, hardly ever used. Absolutely. So that's, uh, yeah, that's the kind. Of, that's the kind of thinking. Thing about like you know living a little a little closer, it does become a little more intimate. You are a little more in each other's spaces, and that that actually there's good there are good arguments for that, and it sort of makes good. it makes it fun. Um, my um, my mom and her siblings, just three of them, um, do this great thing every year where they just have sibling weekend, and they all get together, no kids, and just hang out with each other and. This last year, um, it, it moves around location. This last year, they they did they took my apartment, and so the four of them um, spent the weekend in New York City, um, living out of my 420 square foot apartment. <laughs> oh wow! How'd that go? It was great. They had a great time, and it just you know makes it it's fun. Um, you know, yeah. versus everyone in their own hotel room and. You know, there's like that's part of life is sort of like waking up together and having having tea together and and no, it's you know, true. It's just the way to get more quality time, which is which is in our in our in our busy lives is also fairly lacking. Yeah, no, it's it's actually so very very interesting to think in those terms. And of course, for most of human history, that's exactly what we did. We lived in very small spaces and we lived very mm-hmm. tightly together. And we did indeed wake up together. We had tea together. There was very little alone time. And mm-hmm. um, I'm not sure I want that, but as I look at your designs, and, and you know, you do design so that there can be solitude. And, of course, the single apartments are solitude. So it's, it's just a very, very fascinating yeah. way to think about and rethink living in, in all these mm-hmm. different ways. And it's been very mm-hmm. inspiring. So, Graham, let me just uh, change the subject a bit to just another really huge realm of our lives in uh, in terms of the amount of time we spend, and that's our work life. And you are doing uh, and promoting, as a concept, the idea of the virtual office. And so tell us a little Mm -hmm. bit about that. Well, I mean, I've... Listen, this this isn't possible for for everyone, um, but it is possible for some of us and probably for a lot more of us than think it's possible. Yeah, I've basically been working from home for the last uh, 14 years, I guess. And I just realized that um, if you design it, certainly, it's certainly helpful if you design it from the outside, you can build build companies and work with people all over the world and um, it can be a really great thing and it can save you a bunch of money and still and it'll give you a whole, you know, a whole lot of flexibility. And so, you know, as an example, right now I'm in Maui. I have uh, very close to my cousin Chelsea Hill, um, who lives here, and I, I have a little piece of land, this tiny, powerless, uh, waterless, 200 square foot cabin, and uh, it's great. 
you know, I can come spend a couple months here in the winters and escape New York and have a really amazing, amazing lifestyle and still get a ton of work done. And so uh, it's great. And and also, you know, like our team at this point, we have Ross Porter up in Seattle, David Friedlander in New York, and then um, Catalina Andre um, out in uh, Bucharest, Romania. And, and then about, you know, legal and accounting sort of, uh, I guess, mostly in New York. So... It's really, it's, it's, and this is, you know, largely a development and architecture firm, and it, it totally works. So um, mm-hmm. definitely a, a nice way to live and certainly has allowed me to, to have a lot more ex- experiences um, and yet still get, still get work done. And that, that to me is very, very important. No, for, you know, for me too. And I'm living a very similar lifestyle. I have my office in my home. I have an assistant uh, who you know, Brett Walker. Um, yeah. who comes every five days a week. And other than that, I don't go to an office. And I work with people in all parts of the world and work very mm-hmm. effectively. And I remember mm-hmm. when I sold my business back in 1995, it was still the era before email, at least in you know mainstream businesses. We didn't have yeah. email. I remember being in Florida and, and having my design team send me some mock-ups of a particular cover of a of a book is what it was and and how it would take like two hours for my computer to slowly draw this one mm. picture you know mm. and that wasn't all that long ago you know just uh not even 20 years ago and yeah. uh, here we are in a, where we can communicate in ways that are just tremendously effective and just getting better all the time yeah yeah it's amazing yeah. And my staff really appreciates it as well. Because a certain, you need to be able to have a certain amount of trust for sure. But it's just, it's great. Like, you know, they can really, you know, a bunch of them have kids, and so they're able to really integrate kid pickup and drop off or this sort of stuff into it. And I think that's really important. And that, you know, that can help you attract and retain staff. Like it's the thing, it's the thing that they're just gives them a quality of life that don't have when they have to go into an office on a daily basis. Right. So, no, it's, yeah. it's right. That's that's very true. So, you know, just in some ways, one of the ways we in Integral see evolution is that we go back to previous stages of development and bring what's really valuable and precious about that stage back into a mm-hmm. more, you know, integrated whole. And Again, for 98% of human history, we lived at very, very close quarters with each other, and we were had a very, very strong we spaces and, and communication and community. And mm-hmm. that has that just it's part of just growing up. Actually, if you think of you know growing up from a child to a teenager to even through adulthood into elderhood, there's just different complexions to each of those stages of life, and and it's true of humanity as a whole. And when we first got into modernity, where we got industrialized and we learned how to make stuff, and all of a sudden, stuff was everywhere. (laughs) Mm. You know, we're like kids in a candy store. And now we're realizing that that's made us a little teensy bit sick. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So we're readjusting, thanks to guys like you. (laughs) So thanks, Graham. So, yeah, so Graham Hill, founder of Treehugger, LifeEdited.com, 
Anything else, uh, if people are interested in what you're doing and what you're thinking about, there's a, several TED Talks you've done, which are worth looking at. I'll link to those as well. Yeah, so there's a great, I did a six-minute TED Talk, which is um, it's amazing. Like the internet, I've done the internet stuff since 95, but I'm just constantly made. So it's gotten 2.4 million views, I think. I've speaked to an audience of a thousand every night for like six years to get that many people. <laughs> and that Isn't that, so there you go. Six, Incredible. So and, and Graham, what's the name of that talk? Uh, I think it's called Less Stuff, More Happiness. But if you just search Graham Hill on TED, yep. you'll find it. Um, also, it's on lifeedited.com. Um, and our newsletter, as I mentioned before, is a great thing to sign up for. Um, and then I also I wrote an op-ed in The Times that you mentioned. And that, that was I mean, what's so fascinating about it is just that it, I, I thought I just I just needed you just need a small market to do buildings. You just need a small market of people who are interested in what you're doing, different strokes for different folks. So, um, but this is clearly an idea that is attractive to our society. Like that that op-ed got was most the most emailed on of everything on the New York Times for five days straight when it came out. Yeah, I remember reading it, and it made a big impact on me. It's a really, really terrific article. Very personal, very powerful, you know, great testimony there. And that's called Living with Less, period, much less, right? Yeah, I think so. So anything else we integralists need to know? Um. I mean, lots of resources that I really like. The book, the classic, Your Money or Your Life. Um, yeah. I think is a really is a really interesting one to look at, sort of in terms of finances. Um, what's um, my friend Kristen has a company called Fair Companies, and she does videos on you know small living, um, all on YouTube, and that uh, yeah, if you search Fair Companies. And um, how do, how, how got, do you spell that, Graham? F A I R. Fair F A I R. Yeah, cool. Yeah, uh, Kirsten Dirksen. Um, she's got a bunch of great stuff, and um, yeah, there are a ton of re- ton of resources out out there. So. Super. Well, all right, my friend. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, I guess it's probably getting on um, noon in Maui or something, right? Like something yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Well, enjoy your day, and thank you again for being with us, Graham Hill, and we'll talk to you again sometime. Thank you very much. You bet. Have a good one. All right. Bye.